In this inaugural episode of Spirit Stories, our guest is Venerable Moodoo, who is leading an effort to establish a community of practice in the great southern region of Western Australia. Venerable Moodoo first became interested in Buddhism when a chance invitation by a Thai friend to join her in offering food to the Buddhist monks at Serpentine's Forest Monastery, he he became inspired by the monastic way of life. Several years later, after developing an understanding the importance of meditation and renunciation, he decided to take up the training to become a Buddhist monk. In 2014, after completing the two-year trial and preliminary training, Venerable Mudu received the higher ordination as a fully ordained bhikkhu under his teacher, the preceptor, Ajahn Brahm at Bodhinyana Buddhist Monastery. In 2018, he went to Albany at the request of community members there and has since established Bodhinyana Great Southern, and he teaches regularly in Albany, as well as frequent visits to Denmark, Walpole and Mount Barkov, all in the great southern region in the far south of Western Australia. Welcome to Treasure Mountain, Bhante. Thank you, Sol. Thank you for that uh, lovely introduction, the bio. I've heard that before. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty accurate uh, there, that, uh, that bio. Okay. And uh, it's very nice to be talking to you as well um, on this rainy day in the southwest. Um, I think, could you start us off by telling us a little bit about your life before Moodoo? What did you get up to before you became a monk? I think uh, I think I was uh, having a, a reasonably uh, um, happy happy life. I uh, certainly didn't have any extraordinary uh, circumstances of of suffering, no more than what uh, I would imagine uh, most uh, average people might have. I uh, I grew up in uh, Sorrento, a beachside suburb, and. Um, Growing up at a beachside suburb, I remember my mum telling me uh, quite a while later that um, that uh, she had asked my dad if um, us three boys could uh, uh, pursue like Sunday school, so some sort of uh, spiritual uh, teachings with um, the Bible, I suppose you could call it, and. Uh, I'm not sure what my dad's words were, but uh, I imagine they go something like this, that uh, my boys won't be going to church. They're going to play footy and do surf club. <laughs> it's the other Australian religion, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, the surf lifesaving is like an Australian institution that is grounded in service, which is a mm. wonderful thing. I never realised that as a young boy doing surf lifesaving. But uh, as I grew through the ranks as a, a nipper and then a, um, a cadet surf lifesaver and then later on becoming a senior, um, it uh, really did teach me that uh, this, this institution of surf lifesaving was it revolved around serving the community. And a lot of people don't actually uh, kind of see that because it's not, Maybe not in the foreground. Well, it wasn't for me. It was more like going down the beach on on a Sunday and having some fun <clears throat> and uh, learning how to swim in the surf and 
eventually learning how to save lives, which uh, I did many, many times throughout my career. And, uh, and that, uh, that, uh, that put some of the foundations in place for me, I believe, for uh, becoming uh, a monk or becoming a monk that valued service, which is something that uh, I, I do down here. So I did um, actually. Sorry, Sol. Uh, looking back on it, though, did you feel though that uh, there was some sense of happiness which was gained through that through through that service? Yes. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because I quite often tell people here that, um, and that's something Ajahn Brahm also says a lot is that uh, that uh, it's important for people to to do service. Sometimes he has. He has uh, people come to see him after the meal. Uh, Ajahn, Ajahn Brahm does take uh, um, questions from uh, people that have uh, problems in their life and a lot of people suffer, some people suffer from depression. And the first thing he often tells them, he says, uh, do you do any service? Do you do any volunteer work? And that's one of Ajahn Brahm's uh, key teachings to people is to get out there and do service because it brings so much joy. And mm. I say to my uh, fellow surf lifesavers here in Albany that, um, that uh, you never see a volunteer with a miserable face. It does, mm. like you said, it brings up a, a lot of joy and happiness into one's life and I highly encourage it and recommend it. I couldn't recommend it enough. It's such a wonderful thing. It brings so much joy. And then when you've got all those people in one place like Surf Life Saving, when you've got so many people happy, it's just, uh, it's infectious. It's no wonder people, when they join these uh, institutions like Surf Life Saving, they lead very happy uh, lives and uh, it puts in a good foundation for service later on in life. I think you've just made a very simple but profound point about the nature of happiness. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people, maybe that's one of the key ingredients that's missing from society today is that uh, there's, where there's a lot of issues with mental health is that we perhaps lack that sense of service or even neighbourliness sometimes. Um, but you just said earlier on that uh, you felt that you led, led a fairly happy life. Now, a lot of people who come uh, get interested in spiritual practice and meditation and so forth often have a lot of suffering. Um, so what was it that got you interested in the Buddhist spiritual path? Yeah, well, so I did, I did encounter suffering all through my life, um, but uh, uh, as a child you just cop, cop, cop a lot of it on the chin because it's, not, it's not, nothing traumatic, I would say. Um, you know, you, you get born and once you get born, your parents raise you. And then when you get old enough, you have to go to school and you're left on your own. And that can be a frightening experience, just much like your first day when you go to work. You kind of put in a situation that you haven't been in before and it's, it's uncomfortable. So those little sufferings are par for the course of being born as a human. But um, I guess uh, the, the turning point in my life for uh, wanting to pursue uh, something uh, more spiritual was uh, when I uh, I went through what a lot of people go through separation. I did get married, and um, and that uh, marriage is a very difficult thing. It's something that uh, two people really need to kind of cut each other a lot of slack, and, um, and maybe that's uh, you know one of the things that uh, that I was short of. I don't know, but uh, my marriage. Um, 
didn't last and uh, we ended up separating and uh, and that was very very painful experience because um, there's so many um, uh, painful experiences that uh, are associated with separating from someone that you love and uh, and all of the uh, the knock-on effects like family law court and um, looking after care arrangements for the child and stuff like this becomes uh, very, very painful. So I was, at the doc- I was at the dentist one day, my local dentist. I've been seeing him for many, many years, and this dentist said to me, he says, you're grinding your teeth. You should look at meditation. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I started meditating, and that's how I met the lady you mentioned at the start of the, um, the interview when you read the bio, um, my good friend um, Noi, uh, Thai lady, uh, our daughters went to the same school, so we became friends. And uh, so she, I went to see her to find out uh, how I go about meditating. I knew she was Thai and, and I knew she was a Buddhist. And I thought uh, she was a good starting point. So she said, come with me to the temple. And uh, so uh, that's, that's where it all started. But um, I did go to the temple and asked about meditation and they said, we don't teach meditation here at the temple at Serpentine Buddhist Monastery. You will have to go to our city centre in, um, in Nolamara, which uh, you're uh, well aware of, Sol, because uh, for the listeners who don't know, Sol has also been uh, heavily um, uh, in service, serving role with the Buddhist Society of WA as well. And... Um, uh, so I went along there and they, te- they taught, as they still do today, a four-week session that starts on the first Saturday of every month and is a, is a, is a two-hour session that uh, just teaches you the introduction to meditation and it closely follows the book that Ajahn Brahm uh, uh, published uh, called The Basic Method of Meditation. Very, very simple a book to read if anyone's out there that's uh, like me and has difficulty reading, then uh, they should read this book because the text is large, it's succinct, and it's in easy-to-read uh, language. And uh, that's a, that was a great uh, start for me to learn uh, meditation. So that uh, to answer your question about uh, what got me into the meditation, it was the turning point and um was the uh, separating, going through the troubles with separation mm. and the difficulties and the pains and the hurts of, of that. And, um, but who knows what the real um, uh, push direction in life took me to become a monk because when we look at Buddhism, we always uh, look at past lives and karma. So that also plays probably plays a very big part in why I became a monk. And uh, who Thank knows? Thank you, Bhante. And uh, for the benefit of our listeners, I'll be putting a link to the basic method of meditation by Ajahn Brahm in the description below. So, Venerable, you started meditating, and uh, how, how quickly did you think, or what, what was, did that bringing about the changes, was that helping with the, uh, I guess, the sadness and the pain of, of the marriage breaking down? Did it help at that time? Great question, Sol. That's a good question. I, I, uh, I was truly expecting, as um, if you ever listen to Ajahn Brahm's uh, in, um, talks, you'll hear a very similar story. He's, he would talk about 
finishing his degree at university and then uh, following Buddhism, he, he decided he would go and become a monk for one or two years. It shouldn't take, he was a very smart monk, so he understood that uh, uh, because he was so smart as a, a Cambridge scholar that it would only take him one or two years to get enlightened. After he was enlightened, he would come back to England and get married and, and uh, enjoy his enlightenment. I kind of had a similar idea. I thought, <laughs> I thought after reading the basic, basic method of meditation, it looked quite simple, the instructions, that uh, I could do the same thing. And uh, as I found out, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that easy, although meditation is easy if you do, do the right things, but uh, I, didn't, I guess I didn't know all the right things and there was a lot more to tease out of that book than just sitting on a cushion um, so the more I, uh, understood what was involved, cause I did do a lot of Ajahn Brahm retreats at the time as well. I found out that sitting on the cushion alone didn't make, uh, problems disappear. It helped cause it is one of the steps of, of, um, Buddhist practice. And, and for those people that know eightfold path, it's one of the steps on that, that path. But a lot of other things are important too, like um, <clears throat> being a kind person, uh, doing service, um, having a mind that's kind of clean. Uh, I guess my mind came from a, a place that was quite angry being through family law court. So I had anger in my, anger in my mind. It may not have come out in my character and my behavior, but it was certainly inside my, inside my head. So it took a long time to actually practice those, those other things and get some of those other important uh, components of living a good, wholesome life to um, assist the meditation because living a good, wholesome, clean life where you don't harm others and you don't harm yourself, then that leads to this uh, beautiful, clean, pure mind so that when you sit down to meditate, then it does, it does become easy and also the... Um, the hurts that are in your mind, the hurts, uh, the, uh, the pains, they have time to heal because having a still mind uh, does allow um, any kind of damages and pains that you carry emotionally, it allows them to heal. So no, I didn't get uh, relief from my suffering straight away just from sitting on the cushion. That's the main reason I became a monk because I realized the more I committed to uh, letting go, uh, which is a John Brown catchphrase word, letting go, uh, the more I let go of um, uh, things in my life, then uh, I was able to get a deeper practice and from a deeper practice, then yes, I, the pains of uh, those um, troubles I had in my life have alleviated and to a point now where it's almost like you do have some control over this kind of um, volume knob. You can turn the knob up and down uh, when the pain comes up. You don't have to really feel that, that pain so much. You can, you can see it for what it is and it, uh, it is pain, but it doesn't, uh, doesn't have that effect and hurt you so much. Thank you, Bhante. You know, that's a really good point that you make. In this age where mindfulness and learning meditation is really popular, 
often it's forgotten that there are these other really vital supporting factors, like you say, like kindness, service, like uh, uh, like living a, a good life and keeping the mind, uh, you know, a degree of purity, uh, which really supports the meditation. Um, but I'm curious, I think you've taken us up now to the point of where you ordained. What gave you or what made it, motivated you to take that leap of faith and become a monk? And to, you know, It's a big step, giving up all of your property, uh, your job, all of your external connections. It's a big step. What, what, what motivated you to take that step? Yeah, well, that's just uh, a continuation on from the previous question, which is that uh, that I did want to. Um, I, I I realized that I did not want to have that uh, that that sort of suffering and pain that I experienced uh, through the separation and uh, all the things like family law court. I never wanted to experience that again. I can tell you, as most other people would um, vouch for me, is that going to the family law court is akin to going to a hell realm. (laughs) Yes. I'm glad we can have a bit of a giggle about it, but at that time it is just like, it's hell. It really is a hell realm. And and I I just said I never, ever, ever want to go back to that place again. And um, there came a point where uh, my daughter went to live with her mother and when that happened it was quite a long way away because the mother was teaching uh doing school teaching in country which was like a couple of days drive from perth and up north and so that um, made it very difficult to be uh, an active father anymore so uh, that gave me the opportunity to um to ordain and uh, because my daughter had uh, moved away, uh, I had this, uh, this space in my life that um, uh, there was a void there. So I had an opportunity to go and uh, ordain. I did ask Ajahn Brahm if I could ordain and he normally wouldn't let anyone ordain if they had uh, commitments to their child. And he could clearly see that... Uh, uh, that uh, that I had uh, a child, but that child was living so far away. Uh, it was very difficult to see that child. Also, I guess through um, some of the hurt maybe from my wife, she may not wanted me to actually have much of a connection also with that child. And I can understand that uh, that sometimes happens. And because of that, Ajahn Brahm, gave me the permission to ordain. I made sure that I had the, uh, the uh, legal uh, framework in place. So someone who has uh, a dependent child must have a commitment to uh, continuation with the family support or child support, they call it. So I made sure I had um, uh, money put in reserve to uh, keep that commitment and that um, basically ticked all the boxes with Ajahn Brahm and he gave me the permission to ordain. Okay. Now, a lot of people often wonder what it's like to ordain, um, the challenges, the joys, etc. Uh, I'm curious, what have you found uh, so far in your life as a monk? What have been what are some of the greatest challenges that you've had to, had to deal with? I think the biggest challenge is... Um, is actually uh, having 
having to, yeah, and it's different for every monk, but I guess for me it was um, my, um, at the uh, emotional attachment that I did have with my daughter. So having that um, kind of severed and uh, not uh, uh, just the way that it happened, like I just explained before, mm. my daughter moving up uh, so far away that it was impossible to actually kind of see her. And um, so dealing with, with that was because this is something that's spoken about in the, in the scriptures as well, this kind of emotional attachment you have with loved ones. Uh, is can bring apart uh, can bring about a lot of uh, a lot of suffering. So for me, that's uh, that uh, that didn't go away as soon as I put the brown robes on. I had to work with with the teachings of the Buddha, non-self, and just seeing exactly where uh, this pain was coming from. And it was the the investment of time one puts into being a parent, the investment of time uh, and, and effort that uh, you put, I mean, as a parent uh, yourself knows and our listeners know that uh, you, you put everything in, you put 110% in. And when that, uh, when that is severed, whether it's a child or a wife or a husband or a sister or just anyone who's a loved one, when that is severed, it's, uh, it's a very emotionally painful. So until you can see uh, where that pain is coming from and how you spent a lifetime constructing that relationship and investing so much time into it. I'm not give, saying that having uh, what I, I'm not saying that the um, investment of time is pointless or it is um, it's just all um, pretend or uh, that it's um, just a social or just a just a, something you've constructed in your own mind. It, it is more than that. It's uh, because of this emotional investment, you, you can't detach yourself from it so easy. So when are you are uh, when it's severed, it it uh, it does hurt. But when you can see the mechanisms of where it's come from, this is what I'm trying to say. It's, it's mm. not easy to dis- to explain this, but when you can see where this um, where the investment of emotion comes from then you can start to understand where the hurt is coming from and then it doesn't the pain isn't so great so mm. uh can't tra- you, yeah you, you've asked would, me what's the hardest would you say thing. also though that um i guess you like you talked about that emotional investment as a parent which is huge um but <clears throat> is it do you think it, is it the case that we can be emotionally invested and to give and to love and to care, but without expectation, without that sense of attachment? I mean, is that possible? Or, uh, and, and, you know, I think probably that's where a lot of the pain comes from is that we love and we give and we, we you know, but at the same time we've got so much expectation and so much attachment. It's, it's tricky, isn't it? Oh, you, you're exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. So that's, I think uh, that's that's yeah that expectation that we have is that is what um, that is what uh, really amplifies the the suffering. Mm. 
Because if we go in investing into a relationship and expecting something in return and we don't get that in return, say, so, so for instance, um, yeah, the relationship is severed and we expected so much more from it, then it uh, really does um, cause a lot of pain. Those expectations are John Brahm's favourite, um, one of his uh, most uh, favourite sayings of mine is that um, <clears throat> he says, he says, I don't get any suffering from my monks. There's whether they muck up or they destroy, the, they smash the, the monastery vehicles by accident or whatever. He says, it doesn't faze me. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt me. It doesn't, um, I don't get upset, he says, because my expectations of my monks, he says, I lower the, my expectations so much that I lower it down to zero. <laughs> very wise and he laughs when he says that and you think it's a joke but it's actually it's true it's actually true when you lower your expectations of someone then you're never going to get disappointed so you can always love them unconditionally like you just mentioned before so it can be done but it's tricky <laughs> yeah it yeah, takes a yeah. bit of practice and uh yeah you, you see people they they say they love their child unconditionally but uh it's a, I think that's a bit of a cliche. People have got to be careful what they say when, they, when they're saying that. Okay. Um, switching tack a little bit, as a monk so far, what, what do you feel has been your, one of your greatest joys? The greatest joy about being a monk is actually being able to teach people uh, how to meditate and how, um, how that they can... Uh, also see the suffering in their life and 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 manage it by uh, seeing seeing it for what it is basically like what we've just talked about with seeing suffering for what it is and being able to get a handle on it so that people can live happier lives when I can teach that on a Friday night and on a, here in Albany on a Sunday afternoon in Denmark and it gets, and people understand it, and it gets through to them. Uh, that's that brings me the most joy. The second biggest joy I get is going, uh, doing the two thousand six hundred year old Buddhist tradition of uh, Bindabhat. It's an arms round, and this is something that uh, uh, they do at the monastery in Serpentine every day. They walk um, from the uh, where they have their meal out, they receive all of the guests that come to the monastery and the guests have the opportunity of putting rice into the monk's bowl. And that uh, gets done every day. But what we do here in Albany, once a week on Saturday, we actually go into town just like the Buddha would have done and we actually walk down the main streets, the two main streets of Albany. That's equivalent in Perth to walking down the Hay Street Mall and we see so many people in Albany always greeted by people uh, with happy smiles um, and the number of businesses and the number of people that actually open their doors to us to offer us arms is just growing. It's always growing. It started off with our main supporter group down here that were um, that invited Army down here in the first place, and that uh, we stopped at their their business, 
And then other businesses caught on. And so we go to many, many businesses on the main streets in Albany. And that brings me so much joy to see these people. They're waiting to see the monks come down. And there's two monks here at the moment in Albany. We're privileged to have a second monk. And uh, that Bindabhat, whether it was at Serpentine, just doing it at the monastery or here in Albany, doing it actually on the streets, seeing real people who aren't even Buddhist to... Um, uh, give them the opportunity to see that they actually have their very own monks here in the Great Southern in Albany. Uh, that just brings me a huge amount of joy. So they're my two favourite things is uh, teaching people how to meditate and find a happiness in their life. And the second thing is uh, going through, the, through town and just seeing all the people when I do my weekly arms round on a Saturday morning. Mm, very interesting. Well, that brings us to uh, our next question. Uh, which is that a few years ago, you decided to trade the peaceful and stable surrounds of life in Bodhinyana Monastery for a task that very few Australian monks choose to take on, establishing a community and doing so far away from the city and far away from your uh, the monastery where you ordained. You're in the far south of Western Australia. Now, in this decision, you chose the role of pioneering the establishment of a Buddhist community. How has this role of lone teacher and pioneer of Buddhism in a rural and regional community, how has that been for you? Oh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's been a roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, I, was comp- I, must, I must confess I was completely disillusioned when I first uh, came down here because I'd been protected and sheltered by, by Ajahn Brahm at uh, Serpentine Monastery. I had no idea what I was in store for. I just thought, I just thought uh, oh, everybody loves Buddhism because that's all you see at Serpentine. You just uh, Ajahn Brahm, he calls himself the windshield because he catches all of the bugs and all of the muck that the other monks don't have to have because they sit behind the windshield and Ajahn Brahm is the windshield. So you don't see all of the hard times, the difficulties that he had to go through in building Serpentine Buddhist Monastery, Bodhinyana Monastery. I had didn't really expect kind of some of the hardships that I had when I first came here. And there wasn't many. It was just initially when I first came here, I came to a town, uh, Albany, which doesn't has hasn't had buddhist monks here before there is no buddhist temples here it's uh, uh for those of your listeners who don't know uh what albany is albany albany was the first place to be settled in wa and it was going to become the capital city of western australia but a couple of years later perth was chosen so albany has been kind of um left to develop as a rural centre of sorts. Not, uh, it's a combination of city, suburban life now, but uh, there's still a lot of rural space here, which is one of the reasons we did choose it, uh, a, a nice uh, forest monastery, which we've got here. But coming down, you know, some of the locals were a little bit, um, a little bit uh, unsure of what was coming to town because... I had spent two years visiting Albany before I came here to teach meditation. My brother lived here and I did want to come and visit him and Ajahn Brahm originally 
allowed me to come and visit my brother before I'd finished my five years of um, training. Normally the monks kind of stay for that first five years, but he did allow me to come down here to visit my brother. And he, he said, if you go to visit your brother, you will need, uh, I'm asking you to uh, do a public talk and do a uh, teach at one of the prisons, which I did. And that's how, that's how we got the ball rolling here. Uh, to to uh, do the teachings and then I continued for two years doing the teachings um, on a regular basis and I was getting a lot of support from the local newspaper they were quite interested or both of the newspapers actually and they were publishing articles and the most recent one they published before I came down here they gave a full page spread with my mugshot right on the front and um, this uh, this kind of reached all of the um, residents here in Ellica where we are and they were very kind of uh, uh, worried about this uh, cult coming. They didn't know what uh, Buddhism was. <laughs> it's just these weird guys wearing brown bed sheets. They had no idea what Buddhism was. They probably had more of an um, understanding of Christianity which there is many churches down here. So it might be fair to say that it's a mainly Christian uh, community here. But um, uh, when I arrived, uh, we actually had a lot of people just snooping around uh, the perimeter of our tracks because we've actually got this uh, lovely 160-acre property which is uh, bounded or um, adjoins state forest and some neighbours and we're 500 metres from the ocean. So it's a real um, you know, oceanside monastery or hermitage is the correct term. One day it may be a, a monastery. So when I first arrived, we kind of people were snooping around, looking, looking around the tracks and I did actually bump into some people and ask them what they were doing here. And uh, they were a bit... They were a bit um, taken back to be spotted kind of uh, as they were snooping around because uh, the tracks here, uh, the previous owner didn't spend a lot of time here and I guess the locals did use the grounds or the at least the perimeter for walking their horses and walking their dogs and stuff like that because it had a connection to the, to the beach. And so I saw some of these people and... And I, I said, yeah, you can continue walking, you know, your uh, horses here and riding your horses here, but it would have been nice if you asked. So mm -hmm. from those early meetings with some of those people, the two, two in particular neighbours that were actually riding their horses here because it is a rural area. And from that kindness uh, in return, uh, they started bringing Dana here. <laughs> and after Dana, for those of you who don't know, is that they brought meal offerings. And, uh, uh, and uh, I'll just quickly add on one of those occasions, uh, this lovely neighbour of ours, and she used to own a riding school, I believe, for the disabled. So she is a, 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 a serving member of our community as well. She, um, she baked a cake for me. She brought it up here one day and she cut a slice for me in front of me and I said, I think I can smell alcohol in this cake. And being, <laughs> being Buddhist monks, we're not supposed to have alcohol. 
So uh, she, she assured me, no, 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 I made two cakes. And the one that I have back at home, that one's the one has the alcohol icing on. Your one doesn't have any on. So I went, oh, okay, okay. But I think, uh, I think maybe she might have got mixed up there. But uh, <laughs> it's a bit of a funny thing sometimes when monks get offered, offered these things. But, you, but, but I get the impression that uh, the relationship has changed, especially with your neighbours, because I got uh, the impression that in the beginning there was opposition to starting any kind of Buddhist uh, monastery or hermitage, but do you think that that's changed? I mean, and one of the things you said prior to the interviews, you said actually this is a fairly conservative community. It's a rural community. Um, do you feel like that people's attitudes have been changing over the last few years since you've arrived there? Oh, for sure. So, yeah, just like I mentioned, these neighbours that ride their horses, they, they brought me dana and they even invited me to a Christmas party. And monks don't go to parties. So I, uh, I called up Ajahn Brahm and I said, should I go to this Christmas party? You know, this is... This is at, uh, you know, uh, not normally monks go to these things. And he said, yes, you should go to this party. This is an opportunity to meet some of the neighbours. So I went to the Christmas party and uh, I think it's the first Christmas party that I've ever had a Buddhist monk come to. But when I got there, I met every single neighbour and I found out all the gossip stories that we had about us coming in here and I blew all the stereotypes and all the gossiping, blew it all clean out of the water. They met this guy uh, who, uh, although he wears a brown bed sheet, he was actually a real human being. And they, they recognised that and they lowered their guard and they told me, yeah, we did actually, we were worried, we didn't know what was coming into our suburb. And now that we've met you, we're very happy to have you here. And I kind of added this story to them because I, um, I added this uh, one story about um, <clears throat> that, um, you know, I haven't always been, you know, a Buddhist monk. In the past life I was, uh, I was what they would call in Australia a petrol head, someone who likes uh, uh, cars and motorcycles. And I told them that I was even... Once upon a time, I was the burnout champion at Bindoon Rock Festival. <laughs> so anyone here who's my age or a little bit older will know Bindoon Rock Festival was a famous rock festival akin to like Woodstock, but on a smaller scale and run by the outlaw motorcycle gang called the Coffin Cheaters. And they would open that up to the public. And uh, so... So I went there and uh, used to kind of just do that stuff. And when you tell stories like that to these people, they realize that, yes, you are a human being and it brings you to their level and they can. So they're actually quite proud that uh, I think they know that they have their own monks in, in Albany that don't cause any harm. They're quiet. They uh, just uh, sit on top of the hill. They do their practice. And they serve the community. So I think they're, they're more than happy and proud to actually have us as part of their community now, which is wonderful. <laughs> well, that's a big transformation from um, petrol head at Bindoon Rock to a uh, uh, pioneering monk down in Albany. Yeah. And it's, it's quite a story too. So um, 
Anyway, perhaps um, just for the base, for the listeners, maybe you could just describe Burden, uh, no, Great Southern a little bit. What's what's it like where you are right now? Bodhinyana Great Southern is situated uh, four uh, hours from the Serpentine Buddhist Monastery, four hours south or five hours south of Perth. And it is um, a little bit cooler climate than Perth. Um, it, uh, it never gets very hot here. So when it's 40 degrees in Perth and unbearable, here it might uh, it's unlikely to get over 35 degrees. And in actual fact, it very rarely goes over 30 degrees. And so that makes for very comfortable living. Um, the monastery grounds is situated, as I said before, 500 metres from the southern ocean. And uh, the bush here is uh, it's, uh, like a, a low-lying scrub. We're on top of a hill. And the scrub is... Um, uh, dominated by peppermint trees, which you do find a lot of in the southwest of Western Australia. Uh, there's some carry and some jarra and some mary trees here as well, um, but they're more down on the lower part of our property because on the hill it's very windy. Where uh, It's so windy that Albany have set up this 18-turbine uh, wind farm so uh, it gets very windy here, particularly in the summer. Um, we're coming up to Easter now, which is the, the calmest time of the year, and the winter is also very calm. It's not so windy, so looking forward to, to that. I have to ask you about the turbines because uh, in certain parts of Australia, uh, wind turbines have been accused of being very noisy and disruptive, and there's even been court cases how have you found them? Have those wind turbines disrupted your meditation at all? The wind turbines are, are quite a way away from us. Um, even in our monastery four-wheel drive, uh, there's a track that borders our, our boundary and it goes to the turbines and it takes, it takes a good 20 minutes to get there by four-wheel oh, okay. So we really don't hear them. We can don't see them. them. But I have been underneath them. If you're standing right underneath it, you can hear the whooshing of yeah, the, okay. the blades as they spin around. But you, you have, have to be, be pretty close. Very close. <laughs> you have to be within a few hundred metres, I think. That's about okay. it, yeah. Um, there may be some other monks, nuns or lay people who are listening to this podcast uh, that have aspirations to establish a Buddhist community in the place that they live that is um, far from other more established Buddhist communities. And I know... In my work um, publishing um, uh, Buddhist talks over many, many years, you, I hear stories from people who are a long way away from um, their nearest Buddhist community and they uh, you know, have aspirations to one day have a Buddhist community, even if it's very small. So you're in that situation. So what advice would you have for these people who would like to establish their own Buddhist community um, in a place that's maybe... Are quite isolated or quite a long way from other um, uh, Buddhist institutions. What advice would you have? Yeah, well, I, I'll just I remember um, hearing advice that uh, Ajahn Chah gave to Ajahn Sumedho when he he's um, by many considered the, the most senior monk in in this. Um, uh, 
Thai forest tradition established by Westerners. <clears throat> and Ajahn Samedo, um he's quite elderly now, uh, but he, he was quite apprehensive, uh, I, from what I understand, about starting a monastery in England where he was going to be sent. And uh, you've probably heard this as well, but he voiced his concerns to Ajahn Chah and he says, well, what happens if people don't feed us? What happens if we starve? What happens if this? What happens if that? And he had all these anxieties about um, moving away from the comfort of uh, Wat Pa Nanachat, which is the uh, Ajahn Chah lineage kind of monastery, uh, which is very well supported, very comfortable, and um, he was quite anxious. And Ajahn Chah's response to him was gold, and uh, and this is all I needed for my uh, for to get me down here. Hearing what Ajahn Chah said, and what he said was, he said to Ajahn Samedo, "Are there kind people in England?" And Ajahn Samedo answered, "Yes, there are." And he says, "You'll be fine then. Wherever there are kind people, you'll be looked after." And he was exactly right, because all of those, I think, three monasteries or more that are in England are all very, very, very well supported. And I think wherever there are kind people, you'll always be looked after. Um, if you wanted to establish a monastery somewhere that is remote and the, the benefit of op establishing a remote monastery is that uh, you will have um, quite a lot of peace. A monastery like Serpentine is a very busy monastery and um, it has this sense of busyness with it and Although there's nothing wrong with that, uh, some people may prefer something a little quieter. Um, so as long as there's kind people there, then, then you'll get supported. Um, that's what we have found here in Albany. It's, um, it's not a hugely remote um, town. If you look at the size of towns in WA, I think Albany is the fourth or third or fourth biggest. So... There's a population of 40,000 people here. So, um, yeah, uh, there's, there's a people and support not only these days comes from the local community where you are, but we have this online community as well. So just like um, here in Albany, a lot of our supporters are international supporters and they can't come and um, offer dana every day, but they sometimes help out with uh, donations to go uh, towards uh, building um, the buildings and roads and stuff to get into the monastery. So uh, with online now, we do have supporters that uh, are, are all over the world. Well, that's pretty amazing. And, and that's perhaps one of the opportunities of uh, the 21st century is that you can be perhaps a bit isolated uh, geographically, but there's always some support you can seek out online which I think is a real positive. Um, you, I think that what you've said about what Ajahn Chah's quote, I think, uh, has proven to be true in uh, in your experience. There has been kind people and you, you've been well supported. Um, but uh, just imagine if there's a, a group, perhaps maybe just a, a lay group, or maybe they're only just a small number of people. What encouragement would you give them or what advice would you give them in terms of, well, how could we... Um, practice together how could we um, uh, connect with teachings anything like that 
Do you have any thoughts on on that topic? Yeah, I do actually. Um, this um, uh, one of the one of the things that I learnt about Buddhism when I became a monk was there was there's this term that is called the fourfold sangha, and this fourfold sangha is very very important and my understanding of the fourfold sangha is that without having this fourfold sangha their uh, buddhism will eventually decline and collapse so what is the fourfold sangha the fourfold sangha um, in its various uh, definitions uh, can be understood as the fourfold sangha is comprised of four groups that um, constitutes uh, uh, buddhism in uh, and and how it survives so the the four parts of that sangha are a sangha is like um a kind of like a group of things and those four different groups are the group of the the group of monks so male monastics the second group is the group of um nuns the female monastics the third group is the um and not in any particular order by the way the third group is the um group of male uh, lay supporters and the fourth group is the group of female lay supporters and you need all four of those groups for buddhism to survive the monks and the nuns uh, can't survive this is a traditional uh monks that uh we're talking about fully ordained monks that don't handle money, they're celibate, um, and they their food must be um, received through the generosity of others, not in any other way. The food has to be offered to them. Um, without uh, lay people, that receiving food is, is impossible. So you do need all of those four groups. So my point here is that um, if a lay group wanted to get um, a group going, a dharma group, a meditation group, then um, they would be in their best interests uh, to actually invite and um, support uh, monastic communities so that, that you can together as a complete sangha um, receive the full benefits of the uh, Buddhist uh, teachings and um, and I believe that uh, there are groups like this, even the Buddhist Society of WA um does this they have the male and female supporters and they have the the male uh, monastic community the monks in serpentine kelmscott um uh, great southern all and other various places over east uh, um uh newbury buddhist monastery they have the nuns here in gijiganup the nuns over east at santi and, and in other various places around the world and they work together and the latest uh, group that has come up that are doing just this. It's a it's a, a group that is uh, male and female lay people, and it's uh, it's a group in based in um, um, in um, Margaret River, but it, it it's got a collection group. It's called Bambi, and that group um, is doing just that. They they uh, it, it uh, it's an acronym. Bambi stands for Bustleton. Uh, Augusta, M, Margaret River, Bambi, B, B, 
Umbri, <laughs> I hope I'm getting this right, <laughs> I, something, and all these uh, places, and, and they're inviting monks and nuns um, to come and give teachings, and they hold their own meditation groups um, when monks and nuns can't be there, and, and that is a group that is really gathering momentum um, and through the hard work of um, a few various people. And, uh, and that is a good example. So if anyone wanted to see a great example of that sort of lay group happening, please kind of have a look into the Bambi group, B-A-M-B-I. Um, and uh, Sol might uh, be able to actually put a link to, to that group. Um, and those sort of groups, uh, uh, that's, that's a great way for lay people to, to, to work, is to actually work with the Sangha, so that they can guide you with some of the um, some of the uh, the finer points of Dharma and meditation, because after all, the the monks and the nuns that that's their occupation is is the meditation and Buddhism, and they that's what they do. So they're the they're the kind of like the experts, so to speak. Okay, thank you very much. Um, well, that's getting close now to the end. Um, was the um if any of the listeners would like to support your work and uh, Bodhinyana Great Southern, where can they go to find out more information or to make a donation? Yeah, that's great. Thank you for offering that, Sol. The uh, Bodhinyana Great Southern comes uh, under the um, management of the Buddhist Society of Western Australia and they have a website with uh, links on that um, webpage to uh, the Albany Hermitage here, Bodhinyana Great Southern, where you can make donations. So the website for the Buddhist Society of WA, uh, which um, uh, maybe Sol can put on as a link, is www.bswa.org. Yes, and I'll make sure that there's a link in the description below. Anyway, thank you very much, Venerable Mudu, for sharing your story on this episode of Treasure Mountain Spirit Stories. We wish you and the Great Southern community the very best in the work you're doing out there. Thank you very much for having me on the show, um, Sol. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this interview with Venerable Mudu. I'd really like to hear your feedback about how this show went, including what you liked and what you think I could improve on. I'd also like to hear your suggestions for who I should invite to future episodes of Spirit Stories and what topics you'd like to hear our guests address in future episodes of Sage Advice. If you'd like to do this, you can go to the Treasure Mountain podcast page on Facebook or visit treasuremountain.info and uh, you can leave a message on that website. I hope you'll join us next time as we seek treasure within.